These same families who fled violence in their homelands are now too often met by a new kind of violence when they reach new shores. You may have chosen us, but we utterly reject and condemn you. You don't think something like this could happen in New Zealand? Everyone should feel safe to pray however they want. Another tragic terrorist attack at a place of worship. 50 innocent Muslims slain in two separate mosque attacks in Christchurch, New Zealand. An author and professor on Islamic thought tells us how the Muslim community is grieving in the aftermath of the attack. A professor speaks on how digital media is often a fire starter when it comes to spreading hate. And a different take on a very serious issue. Do you really think that all Muslims are terrorists? Well, are you saying no Muslims are terrorists? No, no. Our cultural and religious differences will continue to separate us if we don't take care to dialogue with each other. Art imitates life in rural Canada on Little Mosque on the Prairie. This latest terrorist attack at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, have shaken the world. Dr. Albert Froloff, postdoctorate fellow at the Institute of Islamic Studies at the University of Toronto, joins me now. Dr. Froloff, tell us how you're feeling after the aftermath of such a crisis. Well, that was a sense of frustration, firstly, that overtook me. And uh, it was, you know, deeply saddening to see so much people killed without any reason at all. Uh, but what was even more frustrating to me uh, was what happened the next day uh, when one of the ministers of uh, Australia, you know, spoke about uh, the incident in very strange terms. You know, he tried to kind of uh, accuse Muslims themselves, Muslim culture uh, for what has happened. And that was even more frustrating, actually. Yes. And when you talk about that frustration, what does this mean, this crisis for uh, really the discourse of religious freedom? Well, yeah, religious freedom, I guess something quite protected and uh, taken for granted here in Canada, in Europe, in many countries of the West. Uh, I think there is no problem with political uh, understanding of freedom. Freedom is guaranteed, but there is something that is much more, uh, something that exists on a level of sentiment. Uh, between continents and between different peoples. And your research, how does it show how Islam is fitting into the Western world? Are, are we going backwards or are we going forwards? What is that looking like? Well, that's a good question. I can say that after uh, 11th of September, we have a lot of interest uh, towards Islam. Uh, you know, most uh, uh, institutions started to finance programs uh, to learn uh, you know, more about Islam only after that heinous attack of uh, you know, 11th of September. So there is interest towards Islam, but still I think this iceberg of misunderstanding mm -hmm. of something that, is, that we may call as clash of ignorance, mm. that is something that is continuous uh, up to now. Does I that bring a level of distress, do you feel? I think it is. It okay. is. There is a level of distress, distrust. When my wife goes out of the building uh, today, she just told me she wears scarf. Uh, she will. She feels frustrated. She feels uh, fear. You know. Mm. And me myself, when I approach mosque, I start to look around. Actually, uh, I found myself in this situation several times. I, who knows? Uh, so this message that those terrorists tried to convey 
uh, was very heinous. It was, we can get you everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, as long as you are one of, uh, you know, Muslims, if you represent Muslim culture, we can get you anywhere. And uh, I, I fear to say that uh, this message uh, was really conveyed successfully. It is, it is everywhere. So let's talk about a different message now. How do we bridge these gaps? Well, uh, the killer, uh, as you know, left manifesto, which was really long. And it means that there is ideology involved. And ideology means science of ideas. So the fight should be on the level of ideas. And uh, we should do everything that we can in order to bring people together to feel them realize that we share common humanity, that uh, both Muslims and non-Muslims, they all feel you know, the same uh, frustration because of this event, and they all want bright future for their kids. They want economic uh, affluence. Uh, they want to have their freedom rights protected. There are, there, there are so many common values that we all share. In Christianity, we constantly face challenges and try to turn the microscope on those uh, challenges, find solutions. Mm -hmm. What would you say is the biggest challenge, I wonder, facing Islam today? Uh, so we have to, uh, you know, explain to people that Islam is, is something that stands to much more than it meets the eye. Mm. Uh, Islam is a really profound civilization. Uh, it's not to be taken, you know, as a, something barbaric, barbarian. Uh, sorry to say that. Wow. <laughs> but you're talking about uh, really bridging those ties that were much closer than, mm -hmm. uh, we're much more connected than we think we are. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Frolov, uh, Professor of Islamic Thought, thank you so much for joining me today. Appreciate your time. It was my pleasure to be here. Police say the Christchurch terrorist attack was motivated by right-wing extremism. A 74-page manifesto was posted online right before the attack. It outlined anti-immigrant and anti-Islamic views. David Hoffman is part of the Canadian Network for Research on Terrorism and Security and Society. He joins us from Fredericton. Uh, Mr. Hoffman, where did all of this really begin? Have we seen a sharp rise in terrorism post 9-11? Um. That's a hard question to answer, uh, and I guess the answer is both yes and no. Um, really, the, the, there's been a, a kind of inflation of uh, the prevalence of terrorist attacks, largely driven uh, in part by the media. Uh, it's not necessarily the media's fault or anything, but as we saw with the Christchurch event that happened uh, recently, I mean, in, in New Zealand, uh, there was an attack and we felt the, the uh, I mean, within an hour or two, we heard about everything here in Canada, which makes it feel like there, there's something more at home that's happening. There's, there's, it makes the, these attacks that happen on the other side of the world feel like uh, uh, they can happen here. So uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me. While, while numerically, um, I mean, terrorism has been a phenomenon as long as, as, as humanity has been around, basically. I mean, there's, there's terrorist groups that go back all the way to uh, ancient Judea, but uh, and and really has been part of, of who we are as, as a society. There there hasn't been a uh, a sharp increase post 9/11, but the way we cover it and the way that that the media uh, has a an exponential effect on the uh, effects, the fear associated with terrorism makes it seem like. Uh, there's a little bit more. Uh, is the notion of copycats a big factor in these attacks, I wonder? Yes, which is why um, it's very important not to, to, to name these types of people. Copycats, uh, I mean, as part of the motivation behind some of these attacks, it, it's, 
they're driven by, by people who want notoriety, people who want to be remembered, and people who are essentially sacrificing themselves for, for an imagined community. So uh, it, it's something that, that they desire, and uh, it, there's, there's a widespread practice uh, amongst media not to name uh, the individuals. It, part of it's to stop these copycats, but part of it's not to, to feed the narrative. Uh, the, there's there's a salient example with um, uh, the incel movement here in, in Canada. Uh, Alec Manassian, uh, who did the van attack in Toronto uh, last June or last summer, I think, uh, in his in his last post to Facebook before he he uh, committed the attack, he uh, name drops uh, Elliot Rogers, one of the uh, another member of the incel movement, uh, loosely affiliated with the right wing movement, who who uh, committed an attack in the U.S. That's right. So it's part of this hero worship. It's part of this this martyrdom. And it's part of this, this creation of a personality that, that, that's part of the motivation. And you talk about creation of personalities, people, groups. What exactly is talking about groups here now? Right-wing terrorism. Many think right-wing applies to the Christian right. I'm wondering briefly if you could kind of explain and bring this into focus for us. There's a clear differentiation between uh, right-wing and conservative values and um, uh, what right-wing extremism and, and right, far-right violence is. It's a, it's a very clear distinction. There are lots of people who hold conservative values, right-wing values, who are pro-social, I mean the vast majority, not lots, who are pro-social, uh, active members of society. Uh, there's nothing wrong with having these types of worldviews. Where these groups differ, really, uh, is that they adopt some sort of combination of, of traits and beliefs that uh, really bring them to the extreme uh, and really differentiates themselves from mainstream uh, right-wing ideas. You know, David, this is, we're going to have yeah. to continue this conversation, but thank you so much uh, for joining us today. My absolute pleasure. Do you think social media contributes to the rise of violence? Well, I think, yeah, a lot of people have extreme mindsets, so they're able to kind of view those things and get brainwashed in terms of that. I guess it allows for uh, amplification of certain kinds of uh, views sometimes uh, to have a larger platform than they might otherwise have or maybe than they should have. A lot of people are sitting behind social media, sitting behind their computer and not coming outside and meeting people and seeing the difference in interacting with a person face to face versus over a computer. The New Zealand mosque killings were live streamed to Facebook for 17 minutes before police were able to get it taken down. The social media platform blocked 1.2 million re-uploads and deleted another 300,000 within 24 hours. What role does social media have in disseminating hate and terrorism? Kyle Matthews is the executive director for the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights at Concordia University. He joins us from Montreal. Kyle, should Facebook have done more, I wonder, to stop the re-uploads and spreading of this heinous attack? I think they should have. I mean, this is, um, I mean, the facts speak for themselves. Uh, the videos were shared millions of times. Uh, Facebook was forced to take down over 1.5 million posts. But also the videos were then also shared in other social media platforms. I came across seeing them myself on Twitter. Um, so I, I think there is something that has to be looked at at Facebook about how extremists are abusing their platforms and, and sharing hateful images and, and images of crimes. A manifesto posted online, believed to be from the New Zealand suspect, says he was planning this attack for two years. Are you surprised this went really undetected? 
Um, yes, I mean, this is the first case that we've seen of a right-wing extremist uh, travel to another country to carry out uh, an attack against the Muslim community. So I was actually surprised. I didn't think New Zealand would be the place that it would take place, that, that we'd see this kind of violence. Um, but there were clues that were missed, posted on social media of guns, um, and authorities never never collected the two. So it is uh, it is surprising, and it's also shows that we have a lot more to do in, in, in trying to deal with these right-wing extremists. Uh, is it possible, I wonder, to stop or detect terrorist propaganda from being spread online? Oh, it's definitely possible. I mean, uh, Facebook and other social media companies have been struggling to contain the spread of ISIS, Daesh-related propaganda. Um, they've hired more content moderators. They're deploying artificial intelligence to try to take down posts. But it's um, there's no... Uh, Band-Aid solution. It's very complex, and there's so many people online spreading hateful messages that uh, it's, it seems like it's almost impossible for a company to, to rid their platforms of this. So take us beyond the curtain a little. Who decides when a social media post is hate speech and should be taken offline? Well, when something is uploaded, uh, you know, very often social media companies, including Facebook, depend on their users to, um, to signal a message if it's hateful or to report it. Um, one of the problems is sometimes this is just people that don't like people's opinions. It's not necessarily hate speech or incitement to violence, but just holding unpopular opinions. Um, but other times, Facebook has uh, deployed software algorithms to detect anything related to hate speech or violent images or, or, or capturing images of beheadings and so forth. So they're trying to increase their capacity to deal with this, but it, it simply is, is just a Herculean task to deal with. Social media, of course, can be used for good and evil. How can we keep the global network as a force for good? I think that is one of the underlying problems here. There's been many calls of governments to, uh, to regulate Facebook and other companies, to uh, impose much higher fines for them, uh, or to uh, reduce people's ability to post stuff online. And the other flip side is that, yeah, there are people in authoritarian states that use social media um, to organize, to share stories of human rights abuses, to, to lobby for people to be persecuted for committing human rights abuses. So um, there is no easy uh, mix here, but I think we have to look at uh, both regulation and forcing companies to have more co content reviewers. Um, I think that's the only way forward. Kyle Matthews, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Canada has a long history of welcoming immigrants. Our towns and cities are filled with the harmony among cultures and religions. One of the programs that helped that harmony is the Canadian TV show, Little Mosque on the Prairie. We talk with the executive producer just ahead. And later, from terrorism to forgiveness? In a broken world, is forgiveness even possible? One team is working toward peace and reconciliation among interfaith groups and cultures. Context is needed. It promotes a fantastic dialogue. We need to stop building idols and icons that we attribute too much power to. If God is the God of all creation, then that includes science. You're watching Context. Welcome back to Context. We turn a corner now taking a lighter approach to a very serious issue, a Canadian television show that captures the heart of what Canada truly is. Canadians are a loving and accepting people. Take a look at a clip from Little Mosque on the Prairie. 
I was planning on holding an open house next week. I could really use your help. Did I say it? Help? Not yet. Good, because I cannot. Uh, don't you care about helping improve the image of the Muslim community? Absolutely. In my off-season. Don't you care about bringing people together? A good, great hobby when I retire. Uh, uh, don't you care about making dozens of new business contacts? As I was saying, I would love to help with the open house. What would you like me to do? I'll fix the lights. A great clip from Little Mosque on the Prairie. Uh, tell us a little bit about that scene. Well, the, uh, the people of the mosque have decided that they really want to do something to create understanding. So the imam of the mosque, um, Amar Rashid, is talking to Yasser. Mm -hmm. There's a bit to, to explain here. Because <laughs> Yasser uh, and, this, and this mosque are both uh, in a church. The, the local reverend has given them a place to have their mosque, so it's in a church. And uh, there's a lot of, uh, of questioning in the community around them. So Amar wants to have an open house. But in order to do that, he needs to get the lights fixed. And he's been waiting for this carpenter, Yasser, who's one of the Muslims in this mosque. He, he wants him to fix those lights. And Yasser is always late. Uh, Yasser's a great character. He's, he's sort of... Um, He's very religious when it's good for business. Fair enough. Uh, oftentimes, television sitcoms reflect the world we're living in. I'm wondering, why do you think Little Mosque was needed? Well, it was just a few years after 9-11, so there was a great deal of controversy. And uh, my wife and I were looking for something that could get to the heart of, of, of really of oneness, I guess you could say. We, we believe firmly that, um, that humanity is one and that Canada is, should be a really good example of that. And there was nothing on TV that reflected that reality. So we uh, happened to run into this wonderful Muslim woman named uh, Zarka Nawaz who had this idea to do what she said was something funny about my community. Mm -hmm. And we thought, oh, funny Muslims. That sounds like a good show. So, so we developed it with her and that was the result. I'm sure in the, in the midst of development, though, there must have been some challenges, trying to break down stereotypes. Uh, what was that like, wrestling that out? Well, the hardest thing, really, I think, is that comedy doesn't usually attract people of faith, uh, generally speaking. Um, maybe, maybe that's a generalization. But certainly there weren't many Muslim comedy writers in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the big challenges was to find writers who could write this with a sensibility towards the religions that they were writing about. Basically, in this case, Christianity and Islam. Um, many writers are, are, you know, young atheist guys. And, uh, and so that was our biggest challenge, I think, was talking to writers about what it was we wanted to accomplish. Because both for my wife and I, we're Baha'is, um, the Baha'i faith. And we believe very strongly that at the heart of both of those religions is something sacred and that that needs to be respected. And around that, all the dogma, mm -hmm. we can have a lot of fun with. And that's what we did in Little Mosque. Wow, um, okay, we'll be right back with Clark Donnelly and Little Mosque on the Prairie. But first, I was in Toronto asking people about the New Zealand terrorist attack and whether they feel safe or not. Take a look. No, I'm not fearful. I mean, in every culture, every situation, you have negative and you have positive, so. I think it's scary, but um, here in Canada, maybe I think there's more security, so 
I feel safe. No, because you can't live your life that way. It's uh, it's going to be what it's going to be, and there's, you know, things like that happening all over the world, and you just have to keep going. Of course, our thoughts and prayers are with them all, and that's all we can do is be hopeful. Mosque is not a tourist attraction. I won't support the open house. You don't support the fight against ignorance and hatred? I'd support it if white people weren't so ignorant and hateful. Oh. People are afraid of things they don't understand. Oh, that's true. That's why I'm afraid of Bobber. <laughs> <laughs> All these foreigners trooping in, we're going to need security guards, oh. metal detectors, bomb-sniffing dogs. Okay. If you're so worried about your personal safety, why don't you stay home this Sunday? <laughs> always bring a good smile to the face. I'm curious, how does humor uh, and entertainment really open up the conversation to some tough issues? Well, you know, I think that humor is essential if we're to get to the reality of things. Mm -hmm. um, it's absolutely vital. So in this case, in the, in the particular clip that we just showed, you have fundamentalism represented by this Babur character and you have this wish by everyone else in the mosque to create understanding, and he, mm -hmm. he's against it. And what a great way to, to demonstrate that reality, because that's truly what's happening really in every religious community and non-religious communities around the world right now, is you have people who are so stuck on an idea that they can't see anything else. They can't imagine a different reality. Um, and then you have people who are really struggling, and it's harder. Right? It's easier to stick to something and just say, well, this is the way it is. Mm -hmm. and, and the other people in the mosque, in this case, the, these women and the imam, are really trying to create something new in the face of that. Are there any miracles or amazing stories, things that kind of broke out, maybe even interesting discussions while you guys were filming the series that really stick out for you? Maybe that flux between entertainment, comedy, and the, the serious nature of what you guys were tackling? Oh, there's lots of things that stand out. Um, so many of them are about the, uh, the response of the audience. I remember there was a, a man in Vancouver who spotted uh, the, the man who plays Bobber. Mm -hmm. And he came up to him and he went down on his knees in front of him. And he said, for the first time, because of you, I feel like I'm a Canadian. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I think, wow. and, and you would think that Bobber was kind of the worst example but for a lot of, especially older uh, immigrant men, they recognized things about him that said, it's okay to talk about this. This, this is who I am. Wow. Clark Dolly, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you. Just ahead from tragedy to forgiveness, how can our New Zealand neighbors heal from this terrorist attack? Context is needed. It promotes a fantastic dialogue. We need to stop building idols and icons that we attribute too much power to. If God is the God of all creation, then that includes science. You're watching Context. Well, the idea of peace and reconciliation in the world in the midst of terrorist attacks, mass shootings, racism, and political polarization and ideological divides can really seem impossible. But taking on the idea of global forgiveness is something our next guests aspire to. I sat down with Johannes Reimer and Manuel Bohm of the Peace and Reconciliation Network who say global forgiveness is possible. Take a look. How much of reconciliation is about forgiveness? It is a, a central piece in the process. The, the Greek word 
for reconciliation, katalasu, means you, you try to put on the moccasins of your enemy. Mm -hmm. You start to understand why has the offender or the victim behaved as they do. And then you, you come together and you forgive each other. So forgiveness is a central piece in all of this. And of course, of course it starts with, a, with an ability to forgive. And that brings God into the picture. Because in, in many instances, you're not able to forgive. And you're not able because your culture, your biography, your past, the uh, thoughts which, which you developed through your life, but also the uh, ideas your culture has given to you. So you, you come as a, a person predetermined for conflict or resolution. And uh, if every culture is like this. Like take this, this city, a mega city with, uh, with hundreds of different uh, languages spoken. And people come here from all over the world and so, most of them have never dealt with their hurts. They come from, from uh, Congo become citizens of Canada, and they, they wish just to strip off their Congolese experience. It's impossible to do, because it's your biography. It needs to be healed. So we say, let's exchange the, 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 old, the old soil which, which created your problems, or the Bible says, put off the old mm -hmm. man mm -hmm. and on the new man. Mm -hmm. And then re you read a long list of uh, of prob problematic areas involved in being an old person. How does this work on a global scale when it's layered with so much? A network is sharing, sharing stories, sharing the resources, sharing what we've learned in one situation and um, not say now we know it all, but we bring it to a different place and say, no, we bring it in. Maybe somebody from an African country comes to an Eastern European country, and that's what we did, and we say, this is what they've learned there. And it's not us telling the truth now, but listen to each other. And this is in the network happening. So we see by bringing a national context to another national context through the global connection, that is actually creating a global movement. We have a lot of tables of dialogue in this nation, but it always seems to break down what is not happening at these tables. So not just sit at the table and discuss the matter, but build up a relationship. So for me or for us, it would be walking out as a church community into the community, listen to the story of the people, building the relationship, and then say, we work with you. Not we know it better, we have a message that you don't know, but to build up from that relationship a trust. And in that trust, discussion can happen on a different level. I would just like to stress, bring people from different parts of the world, Christians, into a global community uh, of peace and reconciliation and things are going to change and they are changing. I would also say for us as the Peace and Reconciliation Network, we look at cities like Toronto. Such a diverse context is for us the place where we really can see not just uh, superficial diversity, but really coming together and recognizing what is the uniting factor, really seeing that Jesus brings us together, working with all these different languages, cultures, but overcoming them and say there is more that unites us and that united voice we want to bring out into the world and say, let's share about Jesus as the Prince of Peace. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Johannes uh, Reimer and Manuel Bohm with the Peace and Reconciliation Network. Thank you so much for your time again. Thank you. Thank you. Blessings.
That's what it's all about, my friends. Peace, reconciliation, and forgiveness. Three words that may seem too simple to say, but are no less powerful in our world that needs it the most, especially right now. Well, for all of us at Context, we'll talk to you soon. Fear rules the world, and it's not anything new that we're seeing. Um, you know, there's that aspect of fear, and it, we can't live in fear. We can't because then the other side has won. So I always like to be an optimist, and uh, again, I believe in hope, and I believe that deep down people are good.